Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to Lies Agreed Upon, the podcast that looks at how film and television use history to talk about today. I'm Leah Parody. And I'm Brian Krim. Every one of us tries to make sense of our current world by telling versions of history that seem to put the puzzle pieces together or offer the most validation. Our own lives agreed upon. The writers, directors, and producers of films and TV shows are no different. Sometimes the connections they are making between history and the here and now can be fairly obvious. But a lot of it goes unnoticed, misunderstood, or misinterpreted. And this is where we come in. In this episode of Lies Agreed Upon, we examine the day everything changed, September 11th, 2001. Until now, we've talked about how the long cultural shadow of 9-11 influenced films about ancient history, the Cold War, and slavery, or institutions like the press or the CIA. But 9-11 itself was off limits. With the images from that day firmly implanted in all of our brains, the impacts, the falling man, the real-time collapse of the towers, Nothing Hollywood could produce approximated what we saw transpire on cable news. But in 2006, two films came out from directors with reputations for making movies that critically examine historical events. In fact, we've looked at both of these directors before. Oliver Stone had confronted everything from Vietnam to American culpability in anti-democratic coups in Central America to the JFK assassination long before his Alexander biopic. And of course, Paul Greengrass wrote and directed Bloody Sunday, which we discussed last week. And now, five years after 9-11, they both decided to take on the horrific events of that day, each with a different strategy and a different focus. Stone's World Trade Center follows the story of a handful of New York Port Authority policemen, first responders with no idea what they were in for that sunny Tuesday morning. Greengrass's United 93 takes to the air recreating the terrifying and chaotic experiences of passengers who stormed the cockpit of the fourth hijacked plane heading to the U.S. Capitol building. 
These two directors dared to go where no others had gone before, 9-11. They also could not be more different in how they chose to tackle this heretofore black hole of representation. So what are the lies agreed upon that these two movies help us examine? Well, first of all, that it's big mistakes or big heroic acts that change the course of history. We think of history with a capital H as a series of self-contained events with a clear beginning and end, hinging on the crucial acts of people who are then destined to become historical figures. But more often than not, it's the accumulation of little mistakes or weaknesses in the system. It's people diligently doing their jobs or too set on a path to turn back. Or it's the convergence of a random assortment of all those things that determine the course of history. And secondly, that lessons are learned and substantial changes made when there is evidence of failure and an obvious need for reform. In fiction, people and institutions learn from their mistakes. Cataclysmic events produce sharp and purposeful changes. But reality, as our students are always shocked to find out, doesn't play out that way. Change happens if it happens, despite the prevailing inertia. As always, we begin with a recap of the plots. Let's start with World Trade Center, directed by Oliver Stone and written by Andrea Berloff. Interestingly, this is only the second movie Stone directs that he didn't also write. It stars Nicolas Cage, Michael Pena, Maria Bello, and Maggie Gyllenhaal. You might catch a glimpse of John Barenthal at the beginning, and Michael Shannon has a key role. And you'll recognize a competent cast of New Yorker-type character actors who lend the story some added authenticity. World Trade Center begins with text informing us that, quote, these accounts are based on the surviving participants, end quote. That's because the heart of the story is the real-life ordeal of transit authority cops John McLaughlin and Will Jimeno, played by Cage and Pena, who were first on the scene at Tower One. Preparing to rescue trapped workers on the upper floors, McLaughlin's makeshift crew is buried under tons of rubble when the tower collapses. Let's play a clip of the Port Authority cops arriving at the scene right before Tower One collapses. Let's go. Stay together. Lieutenant, I was down on B1. The shaft's there at Buckland. There's going to be people trapped in those elevators. Jeez. Just took us an hour to get up to 30 in Tower One. I didn't want us over in two. What happened in two? I don't know. You guys be careful, okay? Yeah, stay safe. This is A1. We're in the concourse. We got gear and a head into one. A1, 800, negative that. Ronnie, go with me out on Barclay Street. I got a team here. We're all going together. A1, is something going on with Tower 2? We certainly can see that the confusion that's depicted here is accurate, but Stone neglects to spend much time explaining to his audience the significance or causes of that confusion. As we know, 364 first responders were killed at Ground Zero. McLaughlin and Jimeno are gravely injured themselves and all but certain to die slowly from internal bleeding. The only things that keep them conscious and alive are their comradeship, telling stories about loved ones, and doing anything they can to make noise in the hope that someone will hear them. The story expands beyond the claustrophobic scenes with McLaughlin and Jimeno to their wives and families, 
who can only piece together what has happened to their husbands from confused and contradictory reports on the news, just like the rest of us. Donna McLaughlin, played by Bello, and Allison Jimeno, played by Gyllenhaal, play the dutiful and strong wives that are obligatory for cinematic hero narratives, each forced to placate their children and families while suppressing their own emotions. We learn Donna and John's marriage is going through a rough spot, and Allison, seven months pregnant, is in danger of losing the baby from the intense stress. Everyone tries to be useful, it seems, but they feel helpless. The viewer is supposed to relate or even relive their own memories of that day through the confusion and helplessness of these family members. Stone attempts to remind the viewers of the bigger story, showing foreigners glued to their TVs and empathy, and the small-town Wisconsin firefighters who drive immediately to Ground Zero to help out in any way they can. But the only additional storyline here is that of Dave Carnes, played by Michael Shannon. Carnes is a recently retired Marine working a boring white-collar job. As news of the day's events unfold, Carnes, a deeply religious man, is compelled to don his uniform and march down to Ground Zero with his go-bag and dive right in. He's crucial to the story because he's the one who ultimately discovers McLaughlin and Jimeno clinging to life 12 hours after the towers collapsed. Thanks to more first responders risking their own lives, and much to the shock of their wives, who by this time assumed their husbands were dead, McLaughlin and Jimeno are rescued, though their roads to recovery are long. The film ends a few years removed from 9-11 when McLaughlin and Jimeno are honored and celebrated by the community. Their families are intact and have grown. McLaughlin's voiceover places their story at the heart of a redemptive narrative about 9-11. Let's listen to that. 9-11 showed us what human beings are capable of. The evil, yeah, sure. But it also brought out the goodness we forgot could exist. People taking care of each other. For no other reason than it was the right thing to do. It's important for us to talk about that good, to remember. If she wasn't here, I wouldn't. Hi, how are you? Congratulations. Because I saw a lot of it that day. Olivia, you coming? We'll talk more about what Oliver Stone tried to do here and why, but let's break down our second film, United 93. Paul Greengrass's expertly directed Bloody Sunday, which we discussed last episode, introduced us to his wandering camera and cinema verite style. He brings this approach to the incredibly intense and gut-wrenching United 93. Using the story of the one plane that did not reach its target, most likely the capital, to tell the bigger story of that morning. There are no identifiable, quote-unquote, stars on the plane, just some recognizable character actors. And back on the ground, in some cases, Greengrass enlisted the actual men and women who participated on that day. Air traffic controllers, NORAD officers, whose IMDb credit entry consists of just this one film. This is by design, because unlike World Trade Center, which needed Cage and Pena to carry the film, United 93 is about the event. 
none of us want to imagine what it would have been like to be on that plane, but Greengrass puts us there. We could have been any one of them. The film begins with the hijackers praying in their hotel rooms the morning of September 11th. The perspective expands to reveal the totally normal routines of all those involved. Pilots chatting about the weather, flight attendants stocking condiments, passengers tending to their family or finishing emails to work. We also see inside various air traffic control hubs, including the FAA in Virginia, which will ultimately become the clearinghouse for all the contradictory reports to come. Like Bloody Sunday, Greengrass just presents people as they are. The methodical narrative structure takes the myriad participants, agencies, locations, and confusion and creates a coherent timeline so that the viewer can appreciate the complexity of the actual day, humans behaving in very human ways. The first mention of hijacking is met with disbelief. As one controller says, we haven't had one of those in 40 years. As we know, and as he shows, American Airlines Flight 11 is the first to hit the World Trade Center. Greengrass reminds us that everyone, even officials, had to go to CNN for more information. The report that a small plane crashed only caused further confusion and lost time. The FAA rushes to analyze tape and report that a foreign voice says, we have some planes. This portentous line is followed by reports of another plane, United Airlines Flight 175, hitting the second tower. All of this unfolds while United 93 is still on the ground, delayed, and the hijackers are visibly nervous and debate when to make their move. The film grows more suspenseful minute by minute, and it is a true testament to Greengrass that he can generate this mood, even though we already know the result. You can't help but get drawn in as 93 is airborne while the FAA military and control towers are scrambling to make sense of what is happening and what to do about it. The absolute disconnect between the civilian FAA and NORAD, a major point of in the post-mortem of 9-11, is fully on display here. Let's listen to a clip taking us inside the military and FAA control rooms. It's pretty representative of Greengrass's eavesdropping style. Those Langley birds over Washington. Surveillance. I want you to hit up tracks west of Cleveland, heading towards Las Vegas. Hit up, light me up every track you've got. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's keep going here. Let's keep working. ID, what do you got? He's off course. He's deviated. We don't know why. Confirmed. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Confirmed hijacking. That's the question. What are we going to do now? Something hit. Uh, the Pentagon on the outside of the fifth corridor, uh, on the Army Corps, several Army officers I talked to reported hearing a big explosion. Listen, I'm not, I'm not taking any more chances. We got stuff flying around we have no control over. And I don't want to board full of these planes hitting every building on the East Coast. This is a national emergency. Everyone lands regardless of destination. That's going to cost me billions. Just do it. We have hundreds of international flights coming in. They're already in the air. No, no I, don't, I don't want any more international flights crossing the borders. And they don't have to go back where they came from. Nobody's coming into the country from now on. Everyone? Everyone. Shut off the East Coast. Shut off all the internationals from Europe. Shut off South America. Shut off the West. 
West Coast. Nothing over the top either. Right, we're gonna call Canada. Yeah, Canada too. Shut down the airspace. I can't accept anybody. Nobody takes off. Land them all. Take a moment. Think about this. We're gonna put. We're gonna shut down the entire country right now. That's right. Listen, we're at war with someone, and until we figure out what to do about it, we're shutting down. That's it. We're finished. Yes, you can hear the average people trying to make decisions in the moment, trying to process all of this information. The moment of truth comes when the hijackers savagely attack and kill a passenger and then brutally murder the pilots and a flight attendant in the same fashion, taking the helm of the plane to redirect it to what we assume was a Washington, D.C. target. Passengers secretly use the phones to contact family and tell them what's happening, and also then learn about the planes that had already reached their targets, including one more at the Pentagon, American Airlines 77. There is no mistaking what is in store for United 93, and passengers and crew plot together. Interestingly, Greengrass imagines a very human response. They are all clinging to a far-fetched plan to subdue the hijackers and place the one passenger with flight experience in the cockpit. No one proposes intentionally crashing the plane, sacrificing themselves for the sake of potential targets. But the audience, like the passengers, know the real odds. The let's roll moment is not a grand or cathartic experience, but a bloody slog from one end of the plane to the other. The film ends with the Pennsylvania countryside rushing toward the cockpit, cut to black and a scroll detailing the timeline of events and the actions and more significantly inactions of the government response. We decided if we are exploring the cultural legacy of 9-11 this season, we needed an episode on the day itself. And in order to fully appreciate the choices made by Stone and Greengrass in depicting that day, it's worth revisiting the lies agreed upon that we're addressing. Remember the lie that history is made up of big choices, big events, big heroics, and big villainy. And remember, in particularly as we talk about what might well have been the contextual events that motivated the filmmakers, the other lie is that people and institutions learn from their mistakes and that we can at least take comfort that huge disasters motivate people in power to make changes for the better. Normally, we devote a segment to setting the scene, providing some historical context for both the events portrayed on screen and what is going on when the films were released. We don't need to describe 9-11. But it might be useful to remind people of what was going on a few years later when these movies came out. Both were released in the summer of 2006, United 93 in June, and World Trade Center in September. It's odd that such a non-summer blockbuster type movie like United 93 would be released in June. But it's a safe bet that World Trade Center was seen by the studio and probably, probably by Stone as one of the important films that show up in the autumn months angling for Oscar nominations. We'll be talking a bit more about the genre placement of this movie a little bit later. Uh, so I think it's worth noting that the release date is also part of that package. It would have been a year earlier, at least, however, when these directors decided to pursue these projects and when they got the green light. 
2005 was the first year of Bush's second term. We can imagine that a critical look at the systemic failures of 9-11 might have galvanized both men. Somehow, the completion of the 9-11 Commission's hearings and the publication of their two-volume report in 2004 resulted in very little change. The Commission interviewed more than 1,200 witnesses, but at the end of the day, the chairman's assessment that the Clinton and Bush administrations had, quote, not been well served by the FBI, CIA, and other agencies was not much of a revelation. Paul Greengrass, however, specifically used the report's meticulous reconstruction of the timeline for his film. It is apparent from Bloody Sunday that Greengrass has great faith in the dramatic impact of a fact-based narrative, clearly told. And he uses the narrow focus on United 93 to camouflage what is really a movie about the entire response on that day. Another crucial bit of contextual information might be that the September 11th Victims' Compensation Fund, set up in 2001, expired in 2004. But the first responders, like McLaughlin and Jimeno, continued to get sick and die from all those toxins they'd been exposed to for weeks and months at Ground Zero. Public sympathy and support for efforts to get long-term funding was strong, while Washington dragged its feet. Perhaps that was one reason Stone and the studio thought this was the story to tell about 9-11, and that in 2006, it would pull at America's heartstrings in an Oscar-winning kind of way. Let's listen to a CNN report from 2012 recounting the long-term health consequences for first responders and their frustration with a government and society that was no longer paying attention. Ernie Vallabona rushed to the World Trade Center site on September 11, 2001, to help with rescue and recovery efforts. There was a lot of confusion, a lot of smoke. You couldn't, you couldn't see when you were trying to walk through the smoke to search for survivors. You know, it's just you could barely see the, your hand in front of you. Then a New York City police detective, Vallabona spent six months at the site. A few years later, he was diagnosed with cancer. 2004 is when I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. His cancer now in remission, Vallabona had to use his retirement savings to pay bills his insurance didn't cover. Vallabona and other first responders made sick by the chemicals and dust are still waiting for compensation from the government. Payments to some who developed respiratory, digestive and other conditions should begin in the next couple of months under a law President Obama signed in January of 2011. The government will announce soon which of more than 50 types of cancer and illness left off the original list of ailments will now be covered under the act. Attorney Noah Koshlevsky represents Valabona and nearly 4,000 other first responders who became ill. Now people are terribly sick. This program is, in a very real sense, a lifeline that is going to help people put their lives back together after they stepped up and did things that nobody else was willing to do. So these movies appeared just as it felt that the long shadow of 9-11 was retreating, but not because of healing, reform, or closure, but because of the notoriously short memory of Washington and without any real resolution to the failings and crises that had either been created or exposed by the attack. And maybe if we should also say, I think the American public has a short memory when it comes to these things as well. Even with all that, however, it's perhaps not a stretch to say that the two events from the summer of 2005 that were still reverberating in the summer of 2006 
weren't directly related to 9-11 at all. Nevertheless, to a post-9-11 world, Hurricane Katrina and the London bombings that came to be known as 7-7 were like trauma on top of trauma. In the case of Katrina, the American public once again felt that something inexplicable and indescribable had happened and that the government had let them down and that it continued to do so a year later. Let's listen to a clip of Anderson Cooper expressing the frustration we were all feeling as we watched the aftermath of Katrina on our TV sets. But joining me from Baton Rouge is uh, Louisiana Senator Mary Landrieu. Senator, appreciate you joining us tonight. Does the federal government bear responsibility for what is happening now? Should they apologize for what is happening now? Anderson, there will be plenty of time to discuss all of those issues, but Congress is going to an unprecedented session to pass a $10 billion supplemental bill tonight to keep FEMA and the Red Cross up and operating. Excuse me, Senator. I'm sorry for interrupting. I I haven't heard that because uh, for the last four days, uh, I've been seeing dead bodies in the streets here in Mississippi. You know, I got to tell you, there are a lot of people here who are very upset. And when they hear politicians slap, you know, thanking one another, uh, it just, you know, it kind of cuts them the wrong way right now. Because literally, uh, there was a body on the streets of of, uh, this town yesterday uh, being eaten by rats uh, because this woman had been laying in the street for for 48 hours and, and there's not enough facilities to take her up. Do you, do you get the anger that is out here? Anderson, I have the anger inside of me. Most of the homes in my family have been destroyed. And I'm just expressing that it is so important for everyone in this nation to pull together for all military assets and all assets to be brought to bear to this situation. And I have every confidence that this country is as great and as strong as we can be to do that. Well, well, I mean, there are a lot of people here who are, are kind of ashamed uh, of what is happening in this country right now, what is ashamed of what is happening in your state, certainly. And that's not to blame the people who are there. It's a desperate situation. Um, but it, I guess, you know, the, who can I mean, no one seems to be taking responsibility. That is one of the really memorable moments with the, uh, from Anderson Cooper's career. And honestly, we felt his rage and I think he, he channeled it in a way that wasn't, uh, you know, about being a showman at all. I think we all remember how helpless we all felt watching that tragedy unfold as well. In the case of 7-7, the British public felt that the dread and expectation they'd had been living with since 9-11 had finally been validated. And four bombings, three on the London Underground and one on a bus, 52 people were killed and more than 700 injured. Here's a montage of the BBC coverage, incomplete, confused, and very similar to what we watched on 9-11 here in the U.S. Reports are just coming in of an explosion at Liverpool Street Station here in London. Okay, I can confirm a bomb damage to train. One carriage completely wiped out. At least nine people, very seriously injured and trapped. Two confirmed fatalities. And there's this explosion. A white, big white, appeared. And then it was just smoke everywhere. In the tunnel, we were trying to close the doors because it was just smoke, we couldn't breathe. Everyone 
we're just asking what's happened, what's happened. All we're being told is it's a major incident and the whole of the London underground is now shut. We're now also hearing that there have been further incidents at Russell Square. And literally, there was just a very loud bang. Uh, the train derailed. There was smoke everywhere. There's a lot, a lot of serious injuries down there as well, a lot of serious head injuries. There are two trains stuck in tunnels at Edgware Road and it's not known if they've collided or whether passengers remain on board. You started listening to the people shouting on the carriage that blew up and there was this, this awful screaming of people like just help, help, help and it's just indescribable. We're now hearing reports that a bus has been uh, ripped apart in an explosion in central London. There is a suggestion that the explosion on the bus uh, in Tavistock Square was caused by a, a suicide bomber. If they are confirmed, then that would be the first suicide bomber to have struck in the United Kingdom. I think you see, you know, as we recall, Londoners found their city shattered during the morning commute, just as New Yorkers had. So by 2006, we lived with a gargantuan national security budget that created layers of new bureaucracy without solving the fundamental problems revealed by 9-11. As John Barron, as John Barenthal's character yells to McLaughlin as they rush to get PPE for the ill-fated rescue, the whole freaking world is coming to an end today. But I think this gets at the point of both films. The whole world as we know it did end that day, and yet, at the same time, nothing seemed to change. So let's talk about Oliver Stone and World Trade Center, which I think you'll agree is a most unusual film from the man who brought us things like uh, JFK and Platoon, Salvador, you know, movies that really attacked American exceptionalism. Um, Born on the 4th of July. I mean, do we need to go on? We know the guy's reputation. So this is something that stands out. Uh, and there's nothing about World Trade Center that, that really screams an Oliver Stone film. Now, we talked about Alexander in our first episode, um, the film he directed right before this one. And I think maybe as Peter Bradshaw of The Guardian writes that maybe Stone is still feeling the you know, the sting of the bad press from from that movie. Let me read a quote from Bradshaw's review of World Trade Center. It's almost as if Stone wants to ingratiate himself with the mainstream public that rejected his historical blockbuster, Alexander, and win the approval of his right-wing critics. To please family audiences, he presents a blue-collar men's world in which nobody utters a swear word. And unlike Paul Greenrass's picture about the passengers on the hijacked United 93 fighting back against the Islamic terrorists, World Trade Center is a curiously passive affair, end quote. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we don't want to discount World Trade Center entirely. It is technically accomplished. It has a compelling narrative. It's got a satisfying resolution. But what I can't understand is why Oliver Stone in 2006 tells the story of the good to come out of 9-11, the bravery and selflessness of first responders without commenting on how the bad, disastrous um, wars of choice and government dysfunction stand in stark contrast to his subjects. In fact, Stone seems to lean in to the narrative that everything that came after 9-11 was somehow meant to happen. 
I mean, consider the character of David Carnes, who's also a real person, by the way, no less heroic than McLaughlin and Jimeno. And Michael Shannon is brilliant in all things. However, he plays Carnes like his memorable role in Boardwalk Empire. Nelson, his, the prohibition agent in that show, was a religious zealot who saw everything as a crusade. And when we meet Carnes, he's in church shaken by the day's events and compelled to serve. Stone films him under an enormous cross as Carnes has an epiphany. He's going to war. Here's the clip where he's talking with his pastor. Pastor, I gotta go down there. New York. You can't. Only emergency responders are being allowed in. my best years with the Marines. God gave me a gift to be able to help people to defend our country. I feel him calling on me now for this mission. Then find a way to listen to him. Yeah, it's a fascinating because we think of Oliver Stone as also the one who directed the movie W, which is pretty critical of Bush and Iraq. But in this film, uh, with a, fil- a character like Carnes, this is a guy who is so uh, affected by the day of 9-11, he, he's going to take up arms. And right after this discussion, though, before he goes to war, literally, he's going to do something heroic and, and go uh, put on his old uniform and walk straight onto Ground Zero. And as he does so, no one even questions the, that he's doing this because he's a Marine. Surely he must belong. So Carnes, you know, after laying eyes on the twisted metal, uh, weirds out the, the firefighter nearby and he tells him strangely, quote, it's like God made a curtain with the smoke shielding us from what we're not yet ready to see. Uh, it is Carnes who hears the metallic pings from McLaughlin and Humano and brings help. He saved them. And when the film ends, Carnes is ready to crusade further, quitting his job to reenlist, and as he puts it, avenge this. And where does he go? Iraq. Two tours. Did Oliver Stone, you know, a fierce critic of the war, just endorse it and the false rationale for it, that somehow Saddam Hussein had something to do with this? It's a really curious choice to, to focus on that story and present it the way that he did. Yeah, and speaking of war, um, World Trade Center carries all the earmarks of the combat war film. The genre was developed during World War II and has been a Hollywood mainstay ever since. Recent versions, of course, include Saving Private Ryan and the miniseries um, Band of Brothers and uh, um, another movie starring Michael Pena, Fury. And we all know the elements of the war film. There's always a multi-ethnic, multi-racial unit of some kind that faces internal and external threats. They have a deadly mission. Many don't return. Sacrifices are made, but seldom questioned. They write letters to wives who are left home to worry about them in very distinct, separate spheres. In World Trade Center, Stone has, in essence, constructed a platoon and volunteers. Irish, Italian, Hispanic, African-American, they wear a uniform and they die in service. The arrival of Dave Carnes reinforces the fact, really, that this is a variation of a combat film. Yeah, and I don't know if that's uh, Stone just 
you know, going back to a genre that feels comfortable, you know, platoon, or is he really in, kind of endorsing the fact that this is a, a different type of war that extends beyond just the, the heroism of that day? And I think that's one of the things that leaves us a little bit confused and muddled. Uh, but I think both films are decidedly apolitical. But maybe choosing that route makes them exceptionally political. Now, World Trade Center is strangely conservative and defensive, exemplified by McLaughlin's passive-aggressive coda, suggesting we should remember the good things about humanity, how the how we came together that day, that sort of thing. Um, and we did that and promptly waged wars of aggression from which we have yet to extricate ourselves. And, and while a war and 9-11 are decidedly big events, the execution of them and the outcome of them are not the result of big actions, but rather the cumulative small actions of many, many people. Uh, so much more is random or piecemeal than we want to acknowledge, because with lives in the balance, we hold on to the idea that there is some master plan. It's more comforting. So, as usual, it's probably clear that we're once again bigger fans of the Greengrass than the Stone film. But watching World Trade Center wouldn't be a waste of your time. There are things worth noting. And watching the two films in tandem is a really interesting exercise, actually. And now if we turn our attention to United 93 with that in mind, I think we can see that... Greengrass is really taking a very different approach. In fact, I'd also like to uh, shout out to Peter Bradshaw again, because I think his review for United 93 in The Guardian gets at a really important point. What he said was that Greengrass really resists being wise about what's happening after it's happened. He really wants to take us back and remind us that there isn't a grand narrative, that in fact, there's chaos and confusion and all sorts of people in all sorts of different places who have never met, will never meet, whose jobs are actually on an average day, very narrow and focused, and that it's only because of these uh events that these four uh, bombings that are happening in these four different places, that this becomes one narrative. And he tries instead to replicate what real life is like. And real life is what ends up being history. The average experiences of everyday people are what end up being what we look back on as history. Yeah, there's no blame here. One of the things that Bradshaw also writes is that you know, people might look at the fact that you know they couldn't get the president online or they didn't know they were Cheney or anyone to, to get the order to shoot, that this is somehow going to be viewed as a critique of, of Bush or anti-Bush. But I, you don't get any of that at all either, because it is, it's about the people who are experiencing at the moment. And why would they be able to, you know, in an instant, get the president who also has no plan for any of this. It's just a, a, con a conglomeration of human fallibility and 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 natural reactions. Just you know, and we and we and we get to see it and experience it as if we were there, which is something a lot of us have resisted doing. And that's why I think the film is so uh, gut wrenching and powerful. Is that and and maybe 
uh, it, it takes us long five years after the fact to even to go there really 12 years after the event or whatever. And I, I, I found it very, very difficult because I felt all the human frailty and inaction and the stress, which is exactly what his goal was to, to represent. And uh, that's why I think it stands above, you know, really any other film about uh, 9-11 that's, that's a feature because it, it, it accomplishes that in a way that nothing else could. I think another thing to note with this film is that it provides the viewer very likely with the very first full picture of the events of that day. Because most people are not reading the 9-11 commission report. And most people, because the hearings and and all of those things went on for a long period of time, we may have been riveted to our TV sets watching Richard Clark give his testimony, which we're going to be um, including in a, our next episode. But most Americans never really did know what the chain of events was of that day. And I think that that's Another thing that United 93 provides answers on a very minimalist level about what was going on for all of the people involved, while we were simply stunned in horror. And I would just add one more thing about United 93 and the depiction of, of events on the plane itself, because we are we want to think of this great heroic act of resistance. And the and Green Graph reminds us that we actually don't know. How could we ever know what was really going on on that plane? And to choose to show it more as, as you noted earlier, a, a natural reaction of like, well, we're not going to, we're not out to crash the plane. We're out to find the guy who has a, some pilot experience and put him in the cockpit. And, you know, and of course he's inventing that as well, but it's equally as, it's just as valid of a point as this, um, as Bradshaw calls it, you know, America's act of Sobibor defiance, you know, this breakout of a, a concentration camp equally doomed to fail. You know, he reminds us that we can't ever truly know what happened on the plane in the my eyes and minds of the passengers. And, and it's a humbling thing to, to have to watch uh, the film for that reason as well. Yes. And I think that uh, that takes us to going down to that level of how these few people reacted or imagining how they reacted in that moment takes us to um, another point that I'd like us to, to maybe spend a little bit of time on which is a way in which we can compare the two films, which is that both Stone and Greengrass choose to go small to talk about big. They both choose to focus on a smaller aspect of the bigger events of this day. At least ostensibly they do. Stone focuses on these two first responders who end up trapped in the rubble. United 93 has in its title the <laughs> promise that he's going to be focusing on this one plane. But the irony is, is that whereas World Trade Center, the title of that movie, actually goes even tighter, whereas United 93, it's almost a bait and switch. It says that it's going to be a movie about 
that flight. But in fact, it's a movie about that entire morning. Yeah, it is. And, and United 93, it's a style of, of Greengrass. It, it's minimalist. Uh, they're, unlike World Trade Center, there are no grand speeches or some emotional coda, no weighty symbols like an enormous cross over, uh, you know, Marine Carnes' uh, head as he, he's going to go to war again. Uh, there's no genre formula here, either, unless you want to say that, you know, Greengrass is his own genre. Uh, but, but it's, 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 you know, both films are, are brutal to watch and there's no frills rendering this as a, as horrible. But I think United 93, because it's so, um, closer to the, the, your, the human response and not a movie of the week type of feel is the one that, that, uh, I think resonates more over time and, and will as we get farther away from the event itself. Yeah. But I think that it also, um, it, you know, it ends up talking about, a much bigger sort of palette. Like it has a much bigger palette. It, it, I mean, I found when I was watching World Trade Center that I was frustrated being there in the rubble with the two of them. I wanted Stone to go out more to show us the experiences of all of the other first responders, of the people who were, you know, stunned and in the streets who couldn't breathe because of all of the smoke, sort of all of that. And we instead are sort of stuck with these two people. Whereas I feel like Greengrass, he could have just had us on that plane. That would have been sort of the equivalent. But instead, he uses that plane as an excuse to go to the FAA, go to NORAD, go to all of these regional uh, hubs for air traffic control. And in doing so, he actually creates this really big picture, even while he's supposedly, as you say, staying very minimalist in how he's delivering it. Yeah, the, the choices there are are, are very different. And, uh, and we prefer the green grass approach. And I think uh, for the reasons we did, we talked about. And let me say something else about the you know, World Trade Center that as someone who's a you know Holocaust film historian and someone who uses the, a lot of Holocaust films to to teach my subjects and also for my scholarship, I kind of look at World Trade Center as almost like the Schindler's List of nine eleven films, and that uh, which is a disservice to Schindler's List. Schindler's List is an excellent film, but cr- critics of of Schindler's List will say that to depict the Holocaust and use a story of Redemption and one where you have triumphant survivors obviously doesn't characterize the event itself. The same kind of criticism can be leveled at World Trade Center to have the story you're focused on as the two as two survivors, people who unlikely survive in a uh, the collapse of Tower One, and turn that into a a, a maudlin redemption tale at the end is uh, also fails to get at the heart of the event and and it feels in a in a way like a movie of the week again Schindler's list is not a movie of the week but it, the critics both agree that when you go this way uh depicting a horrible event and and choose the redemptive mode what are you really communicating and and what is left for um you know, how accurate of a representation can that be i felt like i was being well not manip- manipulated but it just um, 
I don't know how you feel, but I just felt a little weak in in comparison to United 93. Actually, I think that it's not unfair to say that it's a, a manipulative film. I mean, I think that it is wanting to, and, and perhaps it's a case of Stone um, kind of not trusting, which is odd given the size and significance of the event, but Stone in some way not trusting that the emotional impact of 9-11 of all things is going to be fully experienced by his audience unless he creates this kind of human connection by narrowing down the focus on these, on these two people. And so, uh, so I think that it, 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 it is, and I, I think it's interesting that both of us have, we've had two stone movies that we've looked at now in this season and both of them have not been really typical Oliver Stone films. And we've criticized both of them substantially. And I think it's worth telling our listeners that we're actually both fans of Oliver Stone. If you just, you know, bring out the right movie. And I, I think of something like Salvador. Yes. And think about how Salvador is, in fact, in many ways, sort of like United 93, you know, it's it's kind of using this narrow story to actually talk about this much bigger crime, ongoing foreign policy in Central America and using, in fact, a very similar kind of quick and dirty style. And most importantly, trusting that his viewers will go there with him, that he doesn't need to kind of you know, uh, there's an English expression, over egg the cake. Like he doesn't need to make it even richer because it's rich enough without that. Um, and so I, I think it's funny that we uh, have painted ourselves in some ways as, you know, not uh, Stone fans. And in fact, there are uh, Oliver Stone films that we consider to be great movies and great movies about historic, complex historical events. Indeed. I think, yeah, we did mention uh, w, uh, which, you know, kind of gets at the heart of uh, the George W. Bush administration at this time um, and, and Iraq. And, and yet, if that, you know, that was 2004. This movie comes out in 2006. It's like, well, what happened? Uh, maybe it's Alexander that happened. Yeah, maybe the 2000s are not <laughs> the decade for Stone. But as you said, we have a lot of previous great work uh, to deal with. Well, you know, maybe it's time to, to summarize our two films here. And and look at you know, some takeaways. And I think when the time came to finally represent the unrepresentable, these two really accomplished directors came at the day from diametrically opposed perspectives. Stone made a, a big budget movie of the week. It feels like that sometimes. Uh, it feels good. It's a bright spot in a tragedy, a tale of redemption. Uh, yet Greengrass is unflinching, choosing to memorialize the passengers by eschewing the Hollywood treatment. Yeah, I I know it's a strange line from a strange man, but when Michael Shannon's Carnes says that God made a curtain with the smoke, shielding us from what we're not yet ready to see, I thought about how Hollywood depicts atrocity and disaster, uh, or if they ever really come close to doing it successfully. Were we ready to see in 2006? 
Stone pushed us to see things in a certain way, whereas Greengrass just said, look. This episode was written by Leah Parody and Brian Krim. It was edited by Leah, and the theme music was written by Mike Patterson. Check out our website, liesagreedupon.com, for more on each episode, including lit clips and links to the films discussed. You could subscribe to get this excellent free content in your inbox, and you can find us wherever you find your favorite podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at liesagreedupon. That's at lies underscore upon. See you next time.